dozen, M is the 13th letter in the alphabet, so yeah, a dozen bodies of... How did you just know that? You don't know that? What's J? I don't know. You just know M? Yeah. What? That's so <laughs> odd. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you that I know it. I just It's just one of the things I know. Just from this book, or...? No. I just, I just know it. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> I guess because my last name starts with an M, so when I'm like counting. I don't know what G <laughs> is. A, B, C, it, actually, G, I do know it's the eight, but I only know that from musical notes. Yeah, 13. I want to spend so much time on this, but I recognize that we're going long, and I just don't even know what to say, so just continue, I guess. Welcome to More Pages, a podcast where two girls compete to see who will read the most pages and talk about all things book-related along the way. I'm Sarah. And I'm Faith. And what are the vibes today? Today, the vibes are pretty chill today. I feel like we had a chill reading time the last few months. Yeah. We've kind of gotten the handle on the podcast, maybe, even though we're very chill with the frequency with which it uploads now, but it feels more chill. I personally think that people on the internet who really care a lot about the schedule with which they upload content are self-absorbed. I love when people start a YouTube video and they're like, so as you must have noticed, I've been gone for four months. And I'm like, whomst are you? Well, as someone who consumes content on the internet, I notice when my favorite podcasts don't update at the regular frequency, which with they should, I'm like, what are we doing here? I guess that's the fundamental difference is if it's something that you love or is your favorite, then you really care. And if it's not, you're like, get over yourself. Yeah. But those people must be somebody else's favorite. Yeah. And the thing is, we maybe owe our fans an apology because every listener, we are their favorite podcast. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so sorry to you guys. I know you've been on the edge of your seats every week. See, this is what I hate. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's why I was doing it. That's why I was leaning into the bit. I know. It was a pretty good bit. Thank you. But you're right. We have had a chill couple of reading months. Well, mm-hmm. yours has been more chill than mine. Mine has been slow going, at least in the last month. For March, I feel like I read most of my books in like the last half of March. Like I didn't read anything for the first half of March. And I think the same can be said for April as well. I've only read two books this month and we're in the last week. The end of the month is on Saturday. And But how many books have you read in that time? Six. That's a book a week. Well, one of them was a novella. We don't disparage novellas in this house. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and how have you felt about the books? How, mixed. How is the it's, quality? It's been, been a mixed bag. Okay. I'll be honest. I've also started and stopped reading books a lot in this time. So I guess I actually shouldn't be so hard on myself. I have had the best of intentions, but I've picked up some bad books. Best laid plans. Yeah. We did want to open with talking about DNFs. Yeah. And our experience with DNFs. DNF standing for did not finish. Exactly. And our criteria for what books will be an automatic DNF for us. So do you want to tell us about some books that you've DNF'd in the last six weeks or so? Yeah, most notably the one that I have not finished. We'll see. Maybe I'll finish it. Maybe, probably not. (laughs) In fact, actually, very unlikely that I will, is Less by Andrew Sean Greer, which is... And I just want to take a moment because I'm personally a very petty and unpleasant person. (laughs) To say, I told you so. (laughs) Because... You did say that. This book comes with so many accolades. 
Listen, it's very competently written. Could I write anything close to what Andrew Sean Greer wrote in less? No, I'm sure I couldn't. Could I finish that book? No. Was I on an airplane without Wi-Fi and it was the <laughs> only form of entertainment I had? Yes. And I told Faith this. I was like, you're not going to like this book. And she was like, it comes so highly recommended. I was like, I know. You're not going to like it. Yeah. And you know what? You are the second person that I have heard from that didn't like this book. So I don't know why. Like in my life, like <laughs> another person that I know read this book and finished it and he was like it was boring I didn't like it I wished it had been different and I think he probably went into it with a different expectation for what the book was and so because I knew he didn't like it I was like oh it's probably more like a literary fiction and that's just like not really his vibe so like maybe I'll like it like I enjoy books that are more like in that genre that's fair and I have two Storygraph reading challenges that I'm working through right now. One of them is like a multi-genre challenge. I believe there are like 10 genres you have to read through in the year and two bonus genres. And one of the bonus genres is to read an award-winning book. And so I was like, this book has won the Pulitzer Prize. Like, it must be a good book. That's the thing. And listen, I'm not, because I feel like this is another, we started the last episode with <laughs> a very contentious topic. And I feel like this is another one that's going to be contentious. I'm not here saying it's not good. No, it is a good book. It, it's just, I'm sure it's like it has literary merit. Yes. I, I don't dispute that. I just personally could not finish it. Yeah, I have found the main character to be a little insufferable, which is on the topic of automatic DNFs for me. I can get behind sometimes a narrator who is annoying if the plot is good, but if the plot is not hooking me in and also the main character is annoying, I simply can't do it. It makes it so difficult for me to want to continue on. Did you have more things to say about Les? I think the author was really gunning for someone to compliment his writing. So there was so much flowery writing that I was like, you could have just told me about this. You didn't need to make this a whole to do. And every single thing that happens does not need to come with this over the top simile and or metaphor to compare the situation that the main character is going through to something else. If I'm reading this book, presumably I can put myself in his shoes. I can understand why he's experiencing the world in such a way. I don't need to like be force fed these comparisons. That makes a lot of sense. And I think because you said, you know, you enjoy literary fiction. I enjoy literary fiction fiction my experience of that book because I can appreciate a book where nothing happens plot wise but I think the interiority or whatever the book is examining needs to be compelling and I think that the thing about that book is that it was trying to have things happen in a plot like in the exterior world it felt like it was failing to do so to me mm -hmm. it wasn't that we were focusing on the main character Les who is an author's interior world he was traveling all over the planet he was going to different countries a lot of things were ostensibly happening but it didn't feel like like it like there was no momentum you were talking about how when a character is insufferable that can be a dnf for you and i was trying to contemplate what a dnf is for me because i feel like i read pretty widely or i try to but there are definitely some books that i just can't get along with because i don't mind characters who are unlikable so what i realized is i don't get along with characters who are unlikable in the ways that i feel i am unlikable <laughs> <laughs> and i feel like the character of less who is like a very anxious writer type 
type. Mm-hmm. I have no empathy for that. <laughs> or I have empathy, I guess, but I have no sympathy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, get over yourself. Another good example of this that I was thinking of is the book Real Life by Brandon Tyler, which you recently took out of the library. Yes. I uh, haven't read it yet, but... I did read it and I did enjoy it, but I had to get over a big, big hurdle because it follows a main character who is in a, I think a master's or a PhD program in biology. Mm-hmm. And he's realizing that he doesn't want to be a biologist and that he mm-hmm. really likes poetry and writing. And also I believe he's gay. I think this draws on some autobiographical details of Brandon Tyler. So you know, it's completely, and even if it wasn't, it's a completely legitimate thing to write about, and he writes about it very beautifully. The book also examines racism and academia, and it's very good, but I, as a person who started out my degree in a life science, realized I didn't like it, and switched to a literature degree, found this character (laughs) nearly impossible to get along with, because I was like, okay, your little problems about what you're gonna do after school, no one cares! But of course they do care. But I had that little realization that if characters are unlikable in a specific way, for example, Holden Caulfield, famous unlikable character, Mm -hmm. I was fine with him because he doesn't have any of the same neuroses that I have. So I found it very easy to be like, ooh, what's this new character like? Mm -hmm. I think my thing about unlikable characters for me is when, and where I will like start to DNF something is when it's like, and I know I'm going to say this and you're going to be like, that's books. <laughs> You've just described characters. It's fine. I need to be, you need to say some controversial things also, because I'm starting to seem like the shock jock of this yeah. podcast, and I don't like that. For me, it's when characters like intentionally get in their own way, and then they're like wallowing in these problems that they have, and I'm like, you did this. And I think it's because I'm such like a problem solver person. I don't like wallowing in things. You've never created a problem for yourself. First of all, I've never created a problem. I mean, I have created problems for myself. I'm just teasing. I realized I started to lean into the thing that we do where I'm like, yeah, I'm perfect. But for the listeners, I know that I'm not perfect. But like, I feel like when faced with a problem immediately, I'm like, okay, let's fix it. And when characters don't do that and they're like, oh, this is so terrible. I can't believe this happened. How could it happen? And I'm like, first of all, you did it. Second of all, this is how you would fix it. We don't need to spend 300 pages getting from point A to point B. This is a simple conversation. Leading into my next DNF, which is when the crux of the plot is that characters just don't communicate with one another, or there's like a miscommunication. And I come up against this a lot as someone who does read the romance genre because romance authors love to make their big act three breakup all about like a simple miscommunication. You don't need to do that. Simply people would just talk to each other. Although some people don't. Some people don't. I mean, it is just books, but also I do think that it's very hard to come up with a plot where it's believable that all these problems are happening externally, right? Like it is a lot easier to write, I think, to write a character who gets in their own way and miscommunications happen all the time. But the difficulty I think in a romance novel is writing a miscommunication that's believable in a real way where people disagree with each other mm-hmm. and a miscommunication that's clearly just a plot device to get us from the end of act two where everything is happy through to the difficulty of act three and then to the happy ending. Like mm-hmm. it is very difficult to write that. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to have really believable characters to have believable misunderstandings and arguments. That's hard to do. So mm-hmm. I do think you have a point there. Do you have any more? 
One that is very hard for me to define, I guess, is writing that is very precious. For example, there's an author called, I think, Elizabeth McCracken, who wrote a book. I tried to read a book of hers called Bowl Away, which is about a cast of quirky characters in a town, and one of them, from what I recall, opens a bowling alley. Famously, I love bowling. I love quirky characters. I thought it was going to be great, but the writing was just kind of cutesy. It kind of felt like a Star's Hollowy vibe, mm-hmm. and that's not often something I gravitate towards in literature and I feel like this is a good criterion for DNF because it is purely a personal taste thing like I think that this author very intentionally writes in this way and she succeeds in doing it so it's not that there's anything wrong with the book it's just if a book has this I just can't finish it I just have a mental block and then another thing it's kind of a DNF criterion but kind of not because I don't even pick these up anymore or I very rarely pick them up because I know I have so little patience for them multi-generational sagas give me a family fine Give me two generations of a family. Goodbye. <laughs> like, you're going to tell me I need to buy into a decade, a setting, a cast of characters, and then I need to do it again, possibly two or three times, mm-hmm. just because they're connected by family relation? Like, no. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. That's fair. And there are exceptions to this, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But if somebody tells me, oh, this book is amazing, it's a multi-generational saga, I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> Goodbye. I'm out. <laughs> That's fair. I remember I did pick one up a while ago and I didn't finish it. Um, what was it? Was it The Vanishing Half? Oh, yeah. That you were like, I didn't like it because it was a bit of a multi generational story. Oh, here is another contentious <laughs> because The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, who famously we love on this podcast. Yeah. Faith and I are both very big fans of The Mothers by Britt Bennett. Mm-hmm. We didn't get along with The Vanishing Half. Yeah. Which and has the Vanishing been Half. Universally lauded, I feel. I've seen no criticism. Everyone loves a vanishing half. And to be fair, the reason that I DNF'd that book brings me to my next criteria, which is just the wrong vibes for the time. Because I'm such a mood reader, it was like not what I wanted to be reading. And In what way? I think the plot wasn't grabbing me at that point. And I think I wanted... It does take a while to ramp up. I think I was in the midst of, or I was coming off of a reading slump and I just needed something to grab me. Wow, okay, so apparently we're the worst readers in the world. We don't like less, and we don't like to Yeah. <laughs> also, I will say my last and final thing that will make me DNF a book immediately, and this is probably my most controversial opinion. Actually, I wouldn't say that it's actually controversial. I would say that maybe it is controversial among people who love to read, but among non-readers or, like, casual readers, they would agree, which is anything that is, like, experimental or diverges from traditional writing style. This is a big sticking point between Faith and I. Ugh, like, listen. I love, I love an experimental writing and style. And I... <laughs> I tried to read Girl, Woman, Other, couldn't get past it. Also, and I told you so from me. Yeah, I have (laughs) tried. Listen, I watched the Normal People show. I am currently listening to the audiobook. I have tried so many times to pick up that novel and read it. And I would love to read Conversation with Friends because I have heard great things about it. And they have a show coming out on Hulu this year, I believe. And there's another one by Sally Rooney, the title of it escapes me right now but I would love to read her work but the way that she just doesn't use quotation marks for dialogue it takes me right out of the story the second that 
the way that it is written is not how I expect a book to be written. It's like I can't get lost in the story anymore because I'm just like mentally editing it in my head. And the thing with Girl, Women, Other because there were so many like random line breaks, like it was clearly stylistic choices. And I was just like trying to figure out how I would read it because my brain was inserting pauses where there shouldn't be because that's where the line breaks were. Just drove me crazy. Well, and by the way, the other book by Sally Rooney that I think you're referring to is called Beautiful World, Where Are You? Yes. Yeah. I knew it was beautiful something, but I didn't, I wasn't confident enough to say the title that I thought. That's fair. I think that, I think the reason for that is what you said, which is you can't get lost in the story. When someone is writing in an experimental style, often they're calling attention to the form in order to comment on the story. And you don't want that. You want the form to sort of disappear yes. into your blind spot so that you're just in the story. Yeah, for me, I know the reason that Sally Rooney writes. She's spoken a lot about how she doesn't use quotation marks because she wants the dialogue to feel fluid and she doesn't want there to be breaks in the narration. She just wants you to like continue reading it. She wants it to be like almost like a stream of consciousness. And to me, like I said, I'm just mentally editing it. So it actually breaks it for me. Like I can't just flow into it, which is why, you know, I'm really enjoying the audiobook. I think that the novel is really great, but I just can't read it. I have to consume it in a different way. Even as far back as to when I was a child reading Harry Potter for the first time, I was like, okay, but why is she using quotation marks incorrectly? Because <laughs> she's British. And so she doesn't use like the double quote. Yeah, like, she's a single, single quote. quotation mark. And I was like, that's wrong. Like, we're mad. And precocious little me who thought I knew everything in the world was like, I should write to her because she's not writing properly. And obviously I didn't, but it really drove me crazy. I was like, someone should tell her that she doesn't know grammar. I also noticed that when I was little. Yeah. I remember that. But I was a little bit less self-confident maybe. And I was like, <laughs> probably I'm just missing something. Probably this is right for some reason that I don't know yet. Well, I was, I guess, a little bit more aggressive than you as a kid. That tracks. <laughs> That was an interesting conversation. Why don't we talk about the books that we did finish? Yeah, sounds good. So the first book I read, speaking of romance novels that I have finished and didn't give me the silly little miscommunication trope, I read It Happened One Summer by Tessa Bailey, which if you are someone who reads, I would say adult romance, I think I'm the last person in the world to have read this book. It has come recommended by every single person. And you know what? It was good. It was very cute. The characters were very lovable. The main character is named Piper and she is based off of one of my favorite television characters, which is Alexis from Schitt's Creek. And the premise is she's like a little LA socialite. She gets into some trouble. Her stepfather sends her and her sister who goes with her to like take a stand to this like small town where their father is from because their father owned a bar. And so the premise is like she is supposed to take over that bar and like turn it around in the summer to like learn responsibility because she's a socialite and doesn't know how to take responsibility for things. And she will come back at the end of the summer. She meets this fisherman guy. He's like the captain of a fishing ship. A crab is he fishing a ship. fisherman's friend? No, he is the fisherman. Oh, he okay. has friends. She's the fisherman's friend. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and he at first has like no patience for her. He's like, what is this silly girl doing here? And he's then, like, I don't need a fisherman's friend. Yeah, he's like, I have friends. <laughs> They're the fish. <laughs> this podcast not sponsored by fisherman's friends. <laughs> <laughs> and then they fall in love throughout the whole book. But he must be so smelly. From the fish. Well, they, I, you're right. I mean, they fish crab, which I guess are maybe less fishy. You're right. Completely different. Please carry on. <laughs> I don't know enough about crab and or fish to comment, but I think it's different. So it's a happily ever after. 
It is a happily ever after. And what is the... Because we were talking so much about miscommunication and how it's used as a plot device, what's the major difficulty that they have to overcome? Whether or not essentially she will stay because he lives in a fishing town. He is the captain of a fishing boat. That's his livelihood. He has to stay in this town. And she's a socialite. And so she's like, am I going to stay for him? She's thinking about the fact that she wants to stay. She at one point explicitly tells him she wants to stay but also it is like uprooting her whole life and so she kind of like keeps like contingency plans in place like they redo this bar and she like invites her stepfather and then that becomes a point of contention between her and the love interest brendan and she hears back from friends in la who want to invite her back and have like a coming back party and he gets upset with that and so that's kind of the thing is the commitment well, he, I think it's really frustrating in these books when the men don't consider going back with the woman because he could catch crabs in L.A. You're right. <laughs> he could catch crabs in L.A. <laughs> we can cut that out. <laughs> no, that was really good. It took me a second. I was like, no, he couldn't. But then I, I caught up and I realized. <laughs> so much more of a plot where it is the external circumstances that are yeah. presenting the difficulty. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And which character would you say was more lovable of Piper and the fisherman? They were both great. I really liked them both. It was a very believable romance. And it really sucked me in. And one thing I love about romances is when the guy falls first. Because usually it's like women swooning and being like, oh, this big, tall, strapping man or whatever. And I think it's very sweet when the guy is like, yeah, I really, really like this girl. It's just cute. Awesome. So that was the one. I read it in two sittings. Nice. And the book and author again was It Happened One Summer by Tessa Bailey. If you're interested in reading it, it is actually the first in a duology. Her sister who comes to the small town with her, the second book features her sister. Oh, nice. The second book is Hook, Line, and Sinker. Ah, like fishing. Yeah. Got it. (laughs) I'm all over this. Okay, so in March, I spent about two to three weeks reading a book called Prime Ministerial Power in Canada by Patrice Dutil or Dutil. I'm not going to spend a long time talking about this because I feel like most people won't be interested in reading this book, but it is a nonfiction book about a few of Canada's first prime ministers and it's exploring the theory of why (laughs) many people today say that Canada's prime ministers are some of the most powerful in sort of like what they're able to do within our governance structure of any democratic country. And many people say that this is a recent phenomenon, that Canada's prime ministers have recently centralized a lot of power within the prime minister's office. Patrice Duttel kind of takes a historical approach and talks about why Canada's first prime ministers actually started this trend. So it was very good. It was a very good nonfiction book. And as somebody who doesn't know a lot about early Canadian history, famously, I didn't take a single history class after grade 10. (laughs) I actually did learn a lot. So I would recommend it if you're interested in that topic. If you're not interested in that topic definitely don't read it it is very specific (laughs) it definitely was one of the books where I saw you reading it and I was like this is a book that you would get assigned in university and only read the specific pages you have to read for lecture like not a book that you sit down and read cover to cover and I was so impressed that you did well thank you I mean shout out to Patrice Dutill I'm so sorry if I'm saying your name wrong it was quite good it was quite good it was quite readable and I learned a lot nice and what did you read next Next, I read Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid, which was a book that I... That people have probably heard of, unlike mine. It's a little indie (laughs) title. You may not have heard of this book. Taylor Jenkins Reid, she's got a couple of things out, but she hasn't really popped off yet. (laughs) 
Just kidding. Me, like everyone else in the reading community, is a Taylor Jenkins read stan. Except for me. Except for you. Not because I'm not a stan, I just haven't read her yet. Yeah. And you know what? This is not a good intro for you because it is a multi-generational story. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) This book follows the Riva family from the father, Mick Riva, who, a little Easter egg, if you have read any other Taylor Jenkins Reid novels and haven't read this one, I believe he's featured in Daisy Jones and the Six. He is in The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And so it follows Mick as he meets his wife and then they have kids and then they divorce and then it really follows the kids with their single mother and then their mother passes away and so then it follows the kids as they're adults. It definitely is a generational saga. I'm not a character reader. I very much am a plot reader and this was definitely a character book but I was hooked from page one. They were so compelling. I felt like I was with this family through every single thing they went through and that's just like a testament I guess to how well Taylor Jenkins Reid writes characters. These characters really drew me in I have one complaint about the book, which is that, so the way that the book is written, there's the past, but then there's also present day. And present day, every year, the Riva children host like this huge party in Malibu. And it's always known to be this crazy Hollywood party. Like anyone who's anyone goes to this party. And it's like starts from sunrise and then like counts down every other chapter to as the party is going on. And when the party starts happening, which is in like the last, I would say, final third of the book, you start getting these random chapters from random characters who are just at the party point of view which has not happened since previously all of the other chapters are from a member of the family so you get so attached to them so when you start getting these other random point of views you're like what is happening like it took me right out of it I didn't care at all about anything they were saying and I thought at first that they would be easter eggs to different characters from Daisy Jones and the Six which I haven't read another book I started reading stopped reading because it's too different from just a normal novel and I didn't (laughs) like it by which you mean what? It's written as though it is a screenplay for a documentary. And I was like, but I don't want to read a screenplay. I want to read a novel. <laughs> right. I think what the author was trying to do with these little vignettes of other characters was to really ramp up how confusing the party was because you are supposed to get the vibe from this scene that it's really hectic. No one really knows what's going on. A lot is happening. There's a very big climax to the end of the party that ends in like a little bit of a tragedy. You're really supposed to feel like as flustered I guess as you would attending the party but it just was so weird I just couldn't get by it so that was my one complaint about the book the rest was great just seemed like such an odd choice for a character driven book just in the last third of the book start introducing these other characters that I really had no reason to feel invested in yeah I mean maybe the author doesn't view the main draw as the characters maybe Mm -hmm. her conception of it started with this party yeah it's interesting Mm -hmm. and that was Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid Okay, I'm going to start talking about a book now that people also might care about in a shocking turn of events. Whoa. I read a recently published book called Shit Cassandra Saw by Gwen E. Kirby, which is a book of short stories that was published within the last five years, I think. It's a book of short stories. The titular short story is Shit Cassandra Saw, and the premise of that short story is that the prophetess Cassandra from ancient Greek myth is seeing things in her future are present and reflecting on them. It's a commentary on the rights of women and whether or how much they have progressed since many hundreds of years ago, but it's also funny. It made me laugh out loud. There are parts where Cassandra sees, for 
example, dildos and thinks about whether she should tell women in her age that that's coming. (laughs) (laughs) But she also sees tragedy that mirrors tragedy that she's experiencing in her own time and reflects on the fact that women in the future also have it really hard. It was a great starting story and I think it makes sense as a title of the collection because it made me pick it up. But I thought that the rest of the book would also be sort of reimaginings of ancient Greek or Roman stories, but they're not. It's just a bunch of different short stories, but I really did enjoy a lot of them. One that made me laugh so much was called Jerry's Crab Shack One Star, and it is written in the style... Maybe you would hate this. <laughs> it is written in the style of a Yelp review oh of boy. Jerry's Crab Shack, which is a restaurant where a man and his wife go out to eat, and the man is giving Jerry's Crab Shack one star on Yelp, and he's writing a very involved review about why Jerry's Crab Shack is no good. Mm-hmm. But then throughout the review, it turns into a story about him and his wife, and you realize that they don't have a very good relationship. And I wanted to read a couple of quotes that I really enjoyed enjoyed from that short story, if I may. Of course. So he kind of digresses in his review of the restaurant and he starts talking about his wife and he starts talking about that she has a lot of very good qualities and then he finishes by saying, the only item about which I might have anything at all negative to say about his wife would be tolerance for me and really only tolerance for me lately. She is quote, all in about our move to Baltimore. If I quote, had doubts, I should have quote, said something before we bought the goddamn house and moved all our shit up here. I don't disagree with that. She just doesn't see that I am both all in, in the sense that I'm sure she knows what's best, and not all in, in the sense that I'm not sure what will happen next or that I'll like it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's very good if you really wanted to read a book that was reimaginings of ancient myths, don't read it because you're going to be disappointed. But it really is like a solid book of short stories, and I zipped through it really quickly. I wanted to just give one more highlight if I can, that also made me laugh out loud. It's from a story called Friday Night. And I actually don't remember the details of the story. It's very short. It's only five pages, but essentially it's a couple that is trying to conceive a baby. And I'll just read a little bit of it. It's from the perspective of the woman. I take off my bra to show I mean business, but he puts on a shoe because lately my husband needs to be in the mood. He needs to feel like sex is about love. The italics are in the story. And us, and not just about knocking me up. To which I say, what, is meaningless sex not hot anymore? (laughs) (laughs) So it's very good. I really would recommend it, and I read it very quickly, which is pretty impressive for me these days. So again, it's Shit Cassandra Saw, and it's a book of short stories by Gwen E. Kirby. What's next for you? Unfortunately, this is a bad review. I didn't like this book. That's okay. I I feel like I've been gushing too much. We got to bring back the spice. Yeah. So this book, and I'm going to be honest with you all. I'm going to spoil it for you. Left, right, and center because... That's the spoiler alert. Yeah. Because if you hear the plot summary of this book and you think that you want to read it, actually, no, you don't. Okay. So the book that I read was called When the Lights Go Out by Mary Kubica. I read Local Woman Missing at the beginning of the year and really liked it. Yeah, I was like, why have I heard you say this person's name before? (laughs) Yeah, so that's why I picked it up. I saw it on the shelf in the library. I was like, oh, I liked the other book that they wrote, so probably I'll like this one. So I pulled it off the shelf, took it out, and read it. And you know what? It was a cool premise. So the premise is this girl is, I believe, like 19. Her mother passes away. 
after being ill for a long time. And she, in her grief, is dealing with some insomnia issues. She can't really sleep because she was asleep when her mother passed away. So she missed the last moment being with her mother. And so she's like afraid to go to sleep. And one of the last things that her mother said to her was that she wanted her daughter to find herself and to go to college. So she applies to college and then obviously has to apply for financial aid because she is an orphan. She doesn't have any income. This and is in the States. This is in the States, yes. And the financial aid's office reaches out to her and says, hey, weird mishap. Your social security number is actually registered to a dead girl. There must have been a mix up. You must have given us the wrong number. Could you send us back your proper social security number? So then the main character is kind of like trying to unravel this mystery as to why she has the wrong social security number. She can't go to the office that they go to. Immediately my brain was like Service Ontario, but that's, <laughs> they don't have those there. <laughs> Yeah, it's the Service America. Yeah, she can't go to the Service America and she doesn't have her birth certificate. She doesn't have a driver's license. She doesn't have any form of ID. So they're like, how would we know that we're giving you the right thing? So she's trying to like unravel this mystery all the while she's having these hallucinations because she has not slept. And so she's nearing, I believe it's 11 days without having slept. It keeps weighing on her that that's the longest a person has ever gone on record without sleeping and then they died. I mean, I don't know if this is factual or if this is just like made up book science, but like allegedly like your body starts to shut down. I'm sure it does, but my body starts to shut down if I don't sleep for like three hours. So that tracks for me. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't make it 11 days even if you tried. No. <laughs> then she starts feeling like she's being followed and there's this very weird, cause she's so tired. So as the reader, you're supposed to also be confused. And then there's this like very weird altercation where she's being chased by someone. She doesn't really know who it is. She thinks she's been kidnapped. She's convinced herself that her mom kidnapped her when she was young and she is running down the fire escape of an apartment building and then falls and then you're led to believe is dying and then she wakes up and the entire novel has been a dream <laughs> and her mom is still there and is having like a last moment of being lucid. Her she, mom is sick in real life. Her mom is sick in real life. Okay. So when she fell asleep and her mother died, that was just a dream. That whole thing was a dream and then she woke up and she was in the hospital with her mom. Her mom, I believe, had a brain tumor and so she was kind of having like a last few minutes of lucidity but she passes away by the end of the movie and movie sorry <laughs> she passes away by the end of the book every other chapter is this girl and then every other chapter is written as though it's a journal entry from a woman named Eden and Eden is struggling with fertility issues and becomes really obsessed with children and with the fact that she can't have children and can't conceive and she starts sitting on a bench outside of a ballet studio so that she can watch the little girls do their little parade. At one point she attempts to kidnap a child, kind of like lures her away from her mom. All of this to say you're kind of led to believe that this girl is a kidnapped child and that's why she has a forged social security number. That's why she doesn't have a birth certificate or anything like that. But then you find out at the end of the book, it's actually because the mother had an affair on her husband and then just like ran away when she realized that she was pregnant because she couldn't face her husband that she was separated from at the time. So it wasn't really like an affair. The infertility issues has kind of like ruined their marriage. Why would that ruin? Why oh, because she was like a very social security number. That didn't happen. That was the dream. That's the thing. 
the whole mystery, the whole social security number thing. She never applied to college. Her mom never died. She never had insomnia. She was asleep the whole time. Is the Eden storyline also in the dream? The Eden storyline is real. Okay. And those are journals that she gets and she's reading. At the end of the book, you realize she was handed the journals by the ex-husband of her mother who was the man that she was having these fertility issues with that ruined their marriage. He comes back because the mom had written him a letter saying, I'm dying. You deserve to know. I also have this baby. It's not yours, but you still deserve to know. I still care for you. You should have been the father, like expressing regrets. She sent him the journals as well. And so he brings the journals back and gives the journals to the daughter. Okay. Anyway, I just, when she woke up, the rage that consumed me. <laughs> I hate that trope. It's such lazy writing. It's so clear to me that the author had just written themselves into a corner and was like, well, what do I do now? I need a twist. I do feel like it's very common that people don't like that trope. Ugh. And I think it's very bold that the author would choose to do that. I guess the one thing I can say in defense, because I also, I don't like a dream sequence. I don't like any part of a story to be a dream. Just put me back in reality, please. Mm -hmm. I guess because she's not sleeping, it's maybe thematically relevant in some way. Yeah. There is a tie in there. Like she has been asleep this whole time and the story is so confused that it kind of has to be a dream because if you are telling a story when you've been awake for 10 days it's not gonna make any sense and it is kind of like the way a dream wouldn't make sense mm -hmm. I guess but I would also have been enraged I think by that ending because yeah. if it's a mystery you want there to be a satisfying conclusion yeah and that's the thing right like I enjoy reading mysteries and thrillers because I like to see if I can figure it out I was like oh yeah I got it figured like I know what's happening yeah. and then she hit me with this and then I woke up and I was <laughs> like how dare you how do you waste my time like this well also I guess there's pressure I mean you want it to be satisfying but also you want your expectation to be subverted. You mm -hmm. you maybe want it to be surprising. You don't want it to be what you thought it was. Mm -hmm. And there's only so many endings to a book. In Mary Kubica's defense, it is hard to come up with something that is surprising. But I guess you want it to be surprising, but also satisfying, which is tough. Yeah. Anyway, don't read it. Don't <laughs> recommend it. It's not worth it for such little payoff. Fair enough. I love the rage. Thank you. That was some good energy for the pod. I Thank you. I also read a mystery that has a, let's call it interesting ending, but I'm not going to talk about that next because that's Whoa. not, that's not the book I read next. Whoa. So this is just a little tease for the book I'm going to talk about after Faith's next book. So wow. keep listening. It's like we have ads that we're about to play <laughs> and coming up right after this. <laughs> Do you need therapy? <laughs> called Winter in Sokcho and it is a short novel by Elisa Shua Dusapin and it is originally written in Korean and so it was translated by Anissa Abbas Higgins. It was published in 2016 but translated in 2020 so it's relatively new to English readers I believe. It's a very short moody little book but I really liked it a lot. Essentially the premise is the main character is a young woman who who recently graduated university and she's working at an inn in Sokcho, which is a town that is very near to the border between North and South Korea. And she meets a man who is a French graphic novelist who comes to stay at the inn over the winter, hence winter in Sokcho, where there is nothing to do in this town. Normally tourism happens in the summertime and she's like, why are you here? Spoiler, the reason is to write his new graphic novel. He's gonna figure out 
if there's something in Sokjo that can inspire him because a lot of his graphic novels are about basically a stand-in character of himself traveling across the world and having little adventures so he's hoping that something will happen to him in this town and he can write a graphic novel about it. It's a very quiet book. A lot of it is just this young woman and this man sort of slowly developing a relationship, a friendship, but then you sort of get the feeling that maybe they have feelings for each other but it's very muted. If you don't want any spoilers I guess skip ahead for like two minutes. Nothing really happens between them and he does eventually just leave and he writes the graphic novel. I would say that the high point of the plot happens when he asks her to take him to a viewing point where I think you can see across the border into North Korea and he's very interested in this and he asks her to take him and she goes but she tells him when he's there only tourists ever come here. Koreans never come here. And then they sort of have a conversation about war and he talks about well you know I'm French. I know what it means for there to have been war on my land. And she says, no, you don't. Our war never ended. Mm. And she says something like a tourist was shot a few years ago because they were swimming on a beach and they accidentally swam onto the North Korean side and they didn't know. So it's not like a big argument. Nobody throws things. They just have a conversation. But I think that the entire book is contemplating the privilege that certain people have when they grow up in certain places and what it means means for a French man to come to South Korea, look at the border, be able to leave, and then write a graphic novel about it, and what it means for this woman to stay there. There's also a question of whether she's going to move to Seoul with her boyfriend who's trying to become a model in Seoul. She ultimately decides to stay in Sokcho, and what does that mean? She's choosing to stay somewhere that isn't thriving economically, where there's nothing really big going on. It kind of signals to people around her that she's not ambitious, she should be doing something with her university degree, yada yada, but she decides not to do that. There's also kind of an interesting subplot to do with like plastic surgery one of the other few guests at the inn where she works is a woman who is recovering from plastic surgery and her boyfriend also gets plastic surgery to become a model her mom is constantly commenting on her looks every other time she's either too skinny or too fat like every other time her mother sees her she's like you need to eat more you need to eat less and I'm not quite sure what the book is saying about it I think it's very uneasy with the prevalence of plastic surgery in South Korea and beauty standards there but but like I said, it's such a quiet book and I also don't have the cultural context. I'm not going to say what I think the author is trying to say, just that it's there. It's a part of it. And then finally, another interesting thread is the main character's mother has a license to prepare a fish that can be, this is a very fishy episode, <laughs> um, to prepare a certain kind of fish that needs to be prepared in a certain way. Otherwise you will unleash a poison that the fish has in like its liver or gallbladder or something into the full fish. And if you serve that to someone, it's very bad. They'll die or become very ill. And so only people who have this license can prepare this fish in a certain way. It requires a lot of skill in order to be able to do this. Throughout the novel, the main character who, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name. I can never remember the names of anybody in any book ever <laughs> but the main character is constantly seeing the French man kind of like peeking into his room and seeing him drawing and she wants to talk to him about his art it's very central to his personality that he's an artist also at the same time she prepares meals for the inn and he never eats them he always just like goes out and buys food to eat himself and at the end of the novel he says he's going to leave and she's upset and she asks him to do one thing for her which is to eat a meal that she's going to prepare 
there for him. And she prepares this fish that her mom makes. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a license, but she does it anyway. And she goes to give it to him and he's not there. And I think that that is about the fact that he refuses to see her as a subject. He is only seeing the people in Sokjo as an object that he Mm -hmm. is then going to render in his little book. He refuses to see her as a peer, as an artist in her own right, as somebody who has skills and can do things that are technically difficult, just like he can do something that is technically difficult, i.e. drawing. So yeah, and it accomplishes all of this in 135 pages. So it's very good. It's also, I have no idea because I can't read the Korean, but the translation seemed to be very good. Like the writing really packed a punch. So again, that's Winter in Sokcho by Elisa Shua Dusapin, translated by Anissa Abbas Higgis. And I'm going to stop talking about it now. Well, it sounds really cool. Next for me was also a short one, little novella called Upright Women Wanted by Sarah Gailey. I have read one of Sarah Gailey's other novels, Magic for Liars, which I read last year. I think I said in our first episode, it was my favorite novel of the year. I really liked it. And if I didn't, it was definitely like top three. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I will say a little retraction when I spoke about this novel in, I believe our first episode, Magic for Liars, I used she, her pronouns for Sarah Gailey. I didn't realize until I read Upright Women Wanted that Sarah Gailey uses they them pronouns. So my mistake. So this novella is a dystopian future that has kind of reverted back to like hyper conservative, almost Western style. Like the wild, wild west. Yes. And it follows the main character who is on the run because her girlfriend was captured and killed by their town. I think by her family, the main character's family. So she is on the run and she hides out in the cart of a librarian. And so in the society, librarians take approved materials from city to city and distribute state propaganda, essentially. It's no surprise, as you will learn in the novella, actually they are doing that, but also distributing unapproved materials because they are part of the resistance. The cast of characters in the book is so cool. The head librarian that she's traveling with, she's traveling with three people. The head librarian and then one of the librarian assistants are two queer women. They're in a relationship. That's why they take pity on her. She explains why she's on the run and she gets to join them. And then the other character is a non-binary character, which was really cool to see. Are they a librarian too? They are a librarian's assistant, but it was really interesting the way it was handled because it's such a conservative old timey place where the first introduction you get to this character is them saying, you refer to me as they here in town. If you ever refer to me as they, I will kill you. It's she if other people are around. It's very aggressive because it's very Western-y. So that's kind of how they talk to each other. It was just so interesting. Like it was so action packed in 170 pages. A lot happens. I don't want to give too much of it away, but they're transporting unapproved materials, but also people at one point. It's very cool. I could have stayed in this novella for like 300 more pages. I would love to see if the author would write maybe a full length novel in this kind of universe setting. Very great. Would recommend. I have a question about the unapproved materials. Yes. Is it like books from their past, i.e. our present that are feministy, or is it like things that people in their time have written? I believe it is a mixture of both. There's resistance pamphlets that get distributed, but also in the society they have books, but they are state approved books. So maybe books from our present, it doesn't explicitly state, but the way I read it was books from our present that match with the conservative values of that society. So they kept them. They are only like, you can't keep it. Like it's only distributed through the librarians. 
So you're not allowed to have your own personal collection of books. No. We were talking about automatic DNF criteria. One, I think, hokey trope that I can never get enough of is future people referring to stuff from our present in a garbled way because they don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I think that is so fun. (laughs) I think it's so funny. I can't get enough of it. Like Mm -hmm. if they're like, ooh, this... I don't even know. (laughs) But like if, if in this book they were like, oh yeah, it's this like really like rebellious, cool woman writing about women's rights. And they're like, oh, yeah, who's the author? And they're like, oh, Mary Wollstonecraft. (laughs) Like, you probably haven't heard of her. And it's like, we've heard of her. (laughs) We know, but you don't because you're in the dystopian future. Yeah. Oh, I just think it's great. I feel like I knew that I was going to love it as soon as I read the description of this book, but I can't, genuinely can't think of another example of this. Maybe that Outlawed book, Outlaws book that you read. Oh, yeah. So interesting reading matchup situation between Faith and I is that a few months, I would say, before you read Upright Women Wanted, I read Outlawed by Anna North, which has a very similar premise. It is more of a full-length novel, but it also has queer and trans characters in a dystopian Western society. It doesn't have sort of the librarian aspect, but it has a person who has to escape their town and winds up with this band of outlaws, essentially, who is, you know, the cast of queer people trying to carve out an existence for themselves. So if you do read this book and you want more, I would recommend Outlawed by Anna North because it was very well written and very gripping. And also, this is such a small thing, but it has a native character who doesn't die and isn't even like a major, major part of the plot, but is just part of the world. And we revisit him a number of times. He supplies them with equipment and he's just a guy. Like, it's not mm-hmm. weird. I just really appreciated that. Yeah, that's um, cool. Especially for a Western. Exactly. Which mm-hmm. traditionally has natives cast only in a racist cowboys and Indians dichotomy. Caricature way, yeah. Caricature. And this depiction of this character is just so far from that. But please continue. Oh yeah, the thing that I know that I will love instantly is A of all, a dystopia. Because like most people who are teens when we were teens, in the height of the YA dystopia renaissance, I guess it's not really a renaissance. It was a first phrase. First first dystopia. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love a dystopia. And more importantly to this novella, I love a ragtag cast of characters characters being the resistance. I think that's so cool and fun and I fall for it every time. And so when I read the description for this, I knew I was going to like it and I did. Truly the next book, a little teaser for me, the next book that I read was also by Sarah Gailey and I read those two back to back and pretty much immediately cemented for me that I will read literally any word that Sarah Gailey writes. They get me hooked every single book. Well, I guess you'll have to listen to the end to find out what the other Sarah (laughs) Gailey book is. One last point about this book that I do want to say again I didn't read it but I was talking to you about how authors famously love books and so I feel like so many of them want to write a book about books and reading and so many of them do and so many of them do and to me it's almost never compelling Mm -hmm. because you don't read books to read about books you read books for the entertainment of the story. I mean, people read books for a number of reasons, but it's very hard to pull off that meta thing. Like Mm -hmm. the magic of books is the magic of books. It's not about reading about the magic of books, you know? Right, yeah. So I think that writing about renegade librarians is a really cool way of capturing that magic of books while still having a plot that has momentum Mm -hmm. and an interesting world that isn't just about the books. Mm -hmm. I just think that's really cool. So maybe I'll read it. Yeah, it was good. I would recommend. 
It was very fun. That was Upright Women Wanted by Sarah Gailey. If you've listened patiently, you will have realized that we are now coming to my mystery novel that I read. So the next book that I read is called The Dead Mountaineers Inn. It is by Arkady and Boris Strugatsky, who are writers in the 60s and 70s in the Soviet Union, and they are quite well known outside of Canada and the US. They wrote a famous novel called Roadside Picnic, which is about aliens. It's a sci-fi book, and I believe although I have never experienced the other media that's based on this book, but I believe it was turned into a popular video game, which was then turned into a popular movie, and I think that's the way that most people have interacted with this story. But The Dead Mountaineers Inn is a very different kind of book. I think it was written before Roadside Picnic. It is very much a classic whodunit, Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmesy type of book, but with a kooky Russian twist. <laughs> so I'll give you the premise, and I feel like you will get very Agatha Christie kind of vibes. So the premise is that a police inspector called Inspector Peter Glebski takes a vacation from his job and he wants to really unplug, I mean I guess not really unplug, but whatever people did back before plugs. <laughs> well they had plugs, but <laughs> recharge, <laughs> relax. He doesn't want to think about work. He wants to go to this, take a load off take a load off, etc. He wants to go to this mountain inn where people mainly go to ski and to mountain climb and just relax. It is called the Dead Mountaineers Inn because prior to the inspector's arrival, a visitor at the inn died while mountaineering. And so the inn now has some notoriety from this death. And at the start of the book, you're introduced to a cast of characters, each one of which has, you know, a very particular backstory and feel and profession, very clue. Love it. Yeah. And so immediately you're thinking, okay, so one of these guys is going to be a murderer or something, like something's going to go down. And what starts to happen is that... Things start to happen while people are sleeping that makes it seem like the dead mountaineer is in fact alive and wandering around the inn and doing things like turning on a shower when there's nobody in the shower and singing in the shower. You start to see wet footprints where people say that, you know, nobody was walking, etc., etc. So, ooh. Exactly. So it's this classic mystery that starts to get set up and you're ready for it. You know what the steps are. You know what you're in for, except you don't. <laughs> the mystery goes completely sideways, and I would say maybe skip ahead again like two minutes if you don't want to hear the resolution, because I think I will... I don't think I can really convey to you how kooky this plot is if I don't spoil the ending. So essentially what happens is it starts to turn into a murder plot, people start to get killed, and the inspector is sort of forced to act because before then he starts, he sort of says, you know, all these like weird things with the dead mountaineer that are happening, obviously it's not a ghost, it's just people at the inn kind of playing pranks and playing into this myth of the dead mountaineer. And in fact, that is what is happening. There is no ghost. People are just playing pranks. But now real people are dying. So the inspector does have to act because now something else is going on. Some characters start to receive threatening letters. And so he has to figure out, you know, who's the culprit and who's the victim because it's unclear. It seems like maybe there are warring factions of sort of mobs or gangsters that are fighting against each other. And then the inn gets snowed in. And so everybody is locked in together. So I have to say, I love a good snowed in 
in trope. Right? It's just so good. Locked room mystery, quirky characters. It's great. Here's where the genre twisting weird Russian weirdness comes in. So to preface this, I will say that the edition that I read has an introduction by Jeff Vandermeer, who wrote Annihilation. Jeff Vandermeer is sometimes referred to as the king of weird fiction. So that gives you... Is that the one? It's the one where they go into Area X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and then yeah. weird stuff starts to happen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so basically what happens halfway through the novel, and I wish that I could read it to you exactly, but I don't think I noted the page, is the inspector is like trying to piece together the clues and he's really tired of it. Like he doesn't want to do it anymore. And he just... He's on his break. He's on his break. He just wants to ski. And he just casually throws off this line that never gets revisited where he says, I'm not even a police inspector. I sell toilets. What? (laughs) And so you're like, wait, what? He's not a police inspector? So then you're like, maybe he's lying. Maybe he's the murderer. Maybe he has another backstory. Oh my goodness. But it never gets addressed again. Everybody just continues to refer to him as a police inspector. He refers to himself as a police inspector. There's an epilogue where he's a retired police inspector. And so (laughs) you're you're just so thrown off. What a red herring. Yeah, you're just thrown. And like, it doesn't explain why, if that's a lie, whether he lied about it. Like, it almost doesn't matter what the truth is because the author's in my mind, are taking the tropes of the genre not very seriously. That's fair. They're just having fun. They it's, it's so clear to them that they're just hammering out the tropes of a genre that it's like, well, why does it even matter if we adhere to it? You already know what you're expecting. So if we throw in something that doesn't jive with that, it doesn't matter because you already are trying to put yourself back on course mm-hmm. to what you expect from this genre. That's kind of what I got from it. Maybe it means something else. I have no idea. And then at the end, (laughs) the resolution to the mystery is, yes, there are these two mobs and there's, you know, a plot with that. But one of the mobs is actually time-traveling alien robots from the future. Wow. And... Out of left field. (laughs) Was there any setup for that? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the one that we think got murdered actually was just a robot that was powered down. Aww. He just needed to be plugged in. Exactly. But... He, in order to be plugged in, the robot, the, the, the characters in the inn who are the alien robots, which is like, I think like four of them out of the 12 or so that are staying at the inn, need access to this suitcase that the rival mob won't give to them. And the suitcase has the whatever alien charging thing to charge up the robot. <laughs> wow. Why does the other mob that's not, are they human? They're human. And they think that the robot aliens are like agents of the devil or something because they have Um, seen them do things that don't make sense. Gotcha. It barely makes sense. There's this fabulous scene right at the end where the inspector, if he he even is an inspector, is watching the robots. One of the robots is kind of on like a dog sled, but instead of dogs, it's the other robots. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Carrying him. And they're trying to power up so that they can like fly into the sky or whatever and go back to their planet and unfortunately they don't make it so they they do you know their mission fails the the robots die um but in this world of this novel that's the first contact wow (laughs) and the joke at the end of it is that the dead mountaineers inn gets renamed the interstellar zombie inn To capitalize on, you know, the most recent event that happened there. <laughs> Listen, if you've got robot aliens, you gotta lean in. It, it, it does eclipse the dead mountaineer. Yeah, 100%. 
So it's very much just like... Mountaineers are dying at every inn. Yeah. Not every inn has robot aliens. It's true. Yeah, so I feel like it's very much just like laughing at the reader for expecting genre tropes. Like, mm-hmm. that's kind of what I get from it. It's like, why why should it go this way? Yeah. Why shouldn't there be aliens? Yeah. Wait, you only expect aliens in a sci-fi book? <laughs> aliens could land at an inn where a They're police so right. inspector is staying. Go off. I did feel that I really didn't have a grasp on what this book was trying to do, so I did read the introduction by Jeff Vandermeer, and he does kind of posit this idea that... I do get kind of frustrated when people are writing about Soviet Union-era writers where everything has to be tied back to censorship. It's like, maybe they just were thinking about other things. Like, maybe they weren't thinking about the censorship. Not to diminish the impact that that must have had, and and I I don't doubt that it was great, Mm -hmm. but um, he, he kind of says that... You know, this book is very playful and that the later book Roadside Picnic is a lot more serious and a lot more melancholy. And then maybe that was the effects of the politics at the time and people becoming more and more disillusioned with their government. Whether that's true, I have no idea. I don't know really what evidence Jeff Vandermeer has for this. Maybe he has some. I don't know. But... I, I do think that his assessment is true, which is that this is a very playful novel, and Roadside Picnic, which I read a f- couple of years ago, is very serious and very pessimistic mm. about aliens, about humans, about what would happen if we were ever to contact them, about the point of anything. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and when, when you compare that to, you know, the silly, silly scenes in this novel and the fact that it just feels like one big punchline, and that at the end, you know, the, the inspector has no idea whether they were really aliens, what happened, but it doesn't even matter because it was just a fun romp. Mm-hmm. So I do think that that is interesting. But that being said, if you want uh, Weird Time, The Dead Mountaineers Inn by Boris and Arkady Strugatsky. There you go. And now the spoiler time is over. We're going to talk about Fate's next book. My next book. Uh, as mentioned, another Sarah Gailey novel. That was a drum roll. Thank you. Absolutely cemented me for me that they are one of my favorite writers. I would read anything that they write, and I will be. I think they have another book coming out this year, and I will be reading it. Ooh. But the book that I read was called The Echo Life, which is a science fiction book and follows the main character, Evelyn Caldwell. She is a scientist, and she is dealing with the fallout from her divorce. And the reason that she is divorced is because she realized that her husband was having an affair, And when she went to investigate and knock on the door of the woman that her husband was having an affair with, she came face to face with herself. Um, And the type of scientist that Evelyn is, is a... Cursed one. A cursed one. She pioneered cloning. And her husband essentially stole her research and created a clone of her and had an affair with Martine who is the clone of Evelyn. And then when Evelyn found out, he left her for Martine. Martine and Evelyn meet for coffee one day uh, because Martine calls her up and has some questions for her and they get into a bit of a confrontation. And then Martine goes home and asks does Evelyn. And then Evelyn receives kind of a frantic phone call from Martine and Martine says, you have to come over right now. It's an emergency. She's very distressed. So Evelyn goes to their home and the husband is dead and the two women have to figure out what to do about it because legally clones are not people the premise of clones in this book is that they are like 
limited time use products or things like they're not considered human beings like legally they're organ not harvesting or something yeah for organ harvesting for one of the examples that is used in the book is like a politician for example if there is like a direct threat on that politician's life they can have a clone that will make public appearances in the event that an assassination happens the actual politician is not killed right or yeah organ harvesting things like that and it was just such an interesting concept like it was morbid and weird to read about clones but throughout the book Evelyn and Martine develop a friendship because they have to figure out what to do about this because it's not legal for Martine to exist and I guess I will give this away because this is it's the plot of the book wee woo wee woo spoiler alert yeah minor spoiler but Martine is pregnant and so that's kind of like the crux because in Evelyn's research they sterilize their clones. Clones can't reproduce. It shouldn't be possible for Martine to be pregnant. In Jeff Goldblum's words, life finds a way. You're so right. (laughs) But that's the reason that Evelyn can't just turn her in because it would compromise Evelyn's research for the government to know that someone was able to make a clone conceive because that would, that blurs ethical lines between whether or not that is a product or a person. And then what do you do with that child? You know, there's many questions. And so... Evelyn would lose all of her funding and she would lose all of her credibility. She's just won a very prestigious award. So she and Martine have to come together. They form a friendship and Evelyn really has to reckon with the fact that she is now starting to see Martine as a person and then has to reckon with what she's doing and the work that she's doing. And through a weird happenstance, they start building another clone. It's actually really not a happenstance. This is just the plot. So this isn't too big of a spoiler, but in order to cover up the fact that Martine has murdered her husband. They decide to clone Nathan just for a few months and then he will then go away and then Martine can live her life. And they are building Nathan, doing their like cloning process of him. There's a process where they have to program the clone so that they have the correct mannerisms and they respond correctly to the right things. They have essentially like a pattern of the mind and they do that by taking brain scans of the original subject and making sure that when the clone of Nathan sees a picture of Martine, he gets happy because he recognizes that as his wife. But when he sees a picture of Evelyn, he does not get happy and he experiences frustration and anger because those are the feelings that he was left with Evelyn. It was such an interesting read to think about programming the brain and how that would work. And also kind of tackling the question of agency, what makes a human being, what makes a clone different from a human being. It was very interesting. And also, from what I remember of you telling me about this book, there is a a feminist strain in that it is kind of addressing when a man programs a woman. Yeah, so what what does he want from her and what he wants is a submissive... Yeah, so um, this is actually a big spoiler. So if you are interested in... If you don't think that you're going to read this book, which I would highly recommend that you do if you are at all interested in sci-fi, skip the next couple of seconds or the next minute or so. If you don't think you're going to read it at all because this doesn't sound like your jam, this is what happens. But essentially, they find buried in the backyard a dozen... M is the 13th letter in the alphabet. So yeah, a dozen bodies of... How did you just know? You don't know that? What's J? I don't know. You just know M? Yeah. What? That's so <laughs> odd. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you that I know it. I just Is It's just one of the things I know. Just from this book or? No. I just, I just know it. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> I guess because my last name starts with an M. So when I'm like counting. I don't know 
what G is. <laughs> a, B, C, it, actually, G, I do know B, it's A, F, G, but I only know F, that from G, K, L, musical M. notes. Yeah, 13. I want to spend so much time on this, <laughs> but I recognize that we're going long, and I just don't even know what to say. So just continue, I guess. Essentially, they find buried in the backyard a dozen failed attempts at creating Martine buried in the backyard, and they're in various states of success. So the 12th attempt, the attempt before Martine, was like perfect, like flawless, like looked exactly like her. That led them to believe that it was a personality flaw that made Nathan get rid of her. And Nathan attempted to murder Martine. That's, it was, she killed him in self-defense because what in the altercation that Evelyn and Martine had, Evelyn was like, well, what is the point of you? Like, you can't get pregnant. Like, why would he do this? Like, what use are you? And she posed those questions to Nathan and asked like, what is the point of me? Why did you make me? Why would you do this? And he got angry and tried to kill her. And so obviously that was like a, a failed 13th attempt to him. So clearly he was trying to create the perfect version of Evelyn. And I was, I mean, I said to you after I finished the book and I read the acknowledgements at the end of the book, I was so swept away in the sci-fi of it all. I forgot about real life. And so in the acknowledgements, the author acknowledges the man who groomed them when they were a teenager. And I was like, oh, it's all a metaphor for grooming. Like, that's what that is. He was trying to create the perfect woman who wouldn't question him and would have his baby. And because that was part of the reason that Evelyn and Nathan didn't work out was because she didn't want to have kids and he did. And she would be docile and she would cater to his every need. And part of Evelyn and Martine's friendship is she tries to encourage her to think for herself and Evelyn gets really frustrated with her because she's always deferring to the other person and always trying to be she thinks that she's so meek and so weak-willed and it's because that's how she was programmed that's what she was made to be and she's like gets frustrated with Martine but also gets really angry with Nathan and so it was interesting to in hindsight think about it in that way I just felt very dumb that I didn't pick it up when I was reading it <laughs> Because again, I was just so swept up by the coolness of clones that I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> well, it's a very compelling metaphor because there are legitimate ethical questions around human cloning, mm -hmm. but it also, in this instance, works very well as a metaphor for uh, grooming. So, yeah. And it was interesting that, you know, you had this man who stole this woman's research in order to create a better version of her that better suited him. But when she was recreating Nathan, she had this moment where when she was programming the brain, she was like, I couldn't make it so that we never got divorced. Like, I could make it so that he wasn't angry with me. I could make it so that he was more respectful of my success and not as uh, intimidated and didn't want these things that he wanted and I could erase that part of us. But then she realizes that she can't because she has an ethical boundary there and she realizes that that wouldn't be creating Nathan, that would be creating another person that he isn't. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Sarah Gailey seems like they have a lot of range. Yeah. It's very... How old are they? Maybe I don't want to know. I don't know if it says... But their other novel that is out is like a young adult novel hmm. that is quite similar to Magic for Liars, but young adult. And so it focuses on like teens in a magic high school. And then I think they have a horror novel out as well. Just the rain, every single thing I've read from them has been so different, but so compelling every time. Yeah, that's very cool. They can't miss. Wow. And that was The Echo Wife by Sarah Gailey.
Very nice. Up next. I want you to know that I resisted doing like an echo of the word echo <laughs> when you said the echo wife. Echo, 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 echo. Because yeah. <laughs> that's where my humor's at. Okay, so the last book that I read, I finished it yesterday, is called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe by Matthew Gabriel and David M. Perry. It's what it says on the tin. It's a very accessible readable modern contemporary history of medieval Europe. The reason I say that it is contemporary is because it is very aware of and interacting with contemporary concerns, including the way in which the medieval period or the dark ages, which is what the title is referencing, has been co-opted by white supremacists and nationalists of various flavors to justify violent and racist and misogynist views. And so the stated aim and thesis of this book is to portray the medieval period, which starts roughly around the waning in this book, which starts roughly around the waning of the Western Roman Empire and ends in the middle of the 16th century. Um, So this book is trying to portray it in a more accurate way to show how much migration of peoples there were across uh, medieval Europe and Asia and also Africa to show that there was an intermingling of cultures and races and languages across that period, but also to highlight the ways things that have plagued our society, like racism, like slavery, like economic inequality, even like the plague, also have their roots in medieval society. So I believe the book was published in 2021. So the chapter about the plague does explicitly reference COVID. They ex- That's new. Yeah, it's very new. They also reference the shooter in New Zealand in Christchurch. So it is very explicitly having a conversation and making an argument about the fact that this period was both a dark and a bright age. Like every period in human history, humans were terrible and also humans were good and humans of different religions and and cultures lived alongside each other peacefully and they also engaged in wars and any attempt by contemporary people to simplify that history and use it to justify their own ideologies is to do a disservice to that history because it's wrong. The one thing that I want to say to maybe lighten this up a little bit is the authors have so much fun with this little metaphor of illumination and I thought it was so hokey but also so funny. I did make note of a couple of times that they do this So they'll point out like literal illumination. So for example, one chapter is called A Golden Girl in France. This is where they talk about the Carolingian kingdom. And they say it was here under the golden light of an autumn sun amid the golden wheat of southern France and the golden reliquaries of the holy martyrs and bishops and monks, peasants and nobles, men and women all work together to try to understand God's plan for the world. I just picture these academics being like very excited and they're excellent writers, but just being very excited about their little metaphor that they made. I would be, if I had written this book, every single thing would be about light. I'd be like, and then they turn on the lights and it was bright. (laughs) And then they lit a candle. Yeah. Would you believe? And Um, then the sun came up and it was bright. 
Yeah, but but it is uh, it is a good metaphor because part of what they're talking about is they're trying to illuminate the quote unquote dark ages so that we can have a better understanding of that time and the complexities of that time so that in part people can't co-opt it for nefarious purposes and there is a page where they uh, I mean they say this explicitly many times but in this paragraph I thought it was particularly well said they're talking about one iteration of of the holy wars that Christians perpetrate in a number of periods throughout the medieval age and they say but that's the way of the bright ages even when the brightness comes from the fire of burning buildings amid the screams of a conquered city we have to work from the inside of these all too human medieval people try to see the universe as they saw it and ask how and why and so that's I think a pretty good summary of how these authors are trying to write this book it's like I said it's extremely readable I think it's written for a general audience if you don't know anything about history like me I think you can still read uh, and take away a lot from this book and I certainly learned a lot of just straight up facts about like different groups of people that existed and how they interacted with each other. I'm not going to remember all of them but I think it was a really great overview. And then it ends with this interesting argument that they make through a, a little vignette about two people who were having a debate in Spain it's sort of like now when people advertise like, oh, there's going to be a talk between this right-wing thinker and this left-wing thinker. And so basically there is a sort of self-described humanist Renaissance man from Spain who is having a debate with a Dominican friar. So somebody who uh, the authors describe as steeped in the best medieval ecclesiastical training available. And they're having a debate about how Spain should treat peoples in the Americas. And the humanist Renaissance man says that the content warning for racism here, their inferior rational abilities ultimately justified any brutal behavior towards them because they were not uh, Christian. And so their demonic paganism justified their conquest, pacification, and ultimately conversion. Whereas the uh, religious Dominican friar argued that the indigenous peoples of the Americas were polytheistic, yes, but that made them no different in the Christian's eyes from Muslims and Jews in Europe, and therefore entitled to the same right to live peacefully and any others. And so essentially in this instance, they, the authors argue this was a debate at its core about medieval versus modern, about religion versus secularism. And in this debate, a contemporary reader would side with actually the medievalist and not the modernist in the argument. And so I think that the authors are trying to say that right when we're coming out of the quote-unquote dark ages and entering the renaissance is when some of the greatest atrocities in the history actually happened. You know, the colonization of people in the Americas by people in Europe and also a little bit later on the transatlantic slave trade and many things that you know we don't dub a dark age but that maybe we should and that maybe we should interrogate these simple you know good bad delineations that we have between ourselves and medieval 
medieval people where we say, well, medieval people were superstitious and stupid, whereas we are enlightened and smart and all our decisions are justified, whereas everything that they did in the medieval ages was clouded by uh, religious extremism and certainly were much better than that these days, which as we've all seen, I think is not true. And so yeah, it was, it was a really interesting book. I talked about it for a lot longer than I thought I would, I'm sorry, but that was the last book that I read. And again, it's called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe by Matthew Gabriel and David M. Perry. So one of my favorite podcasts, You're Wrong About, they released an episode today and I listened to a little bit of it. I haven't listened to the whole thing, but it's actually about medieval torture. Mm. And it is about how most of the things that we think of when we think of medieval torture, like the torture devices, actually they never used. It was invented by, I guess, the period of time after the medieval era. The Enlightenment era, quote yeah. unquote. In order to make them seem brutal and savage in the medieval times. And I thought that was really interesting and really went well with what you were saying, which is that this idea that the Dark Ages were dark and horrific and awful is kind of fabricated and yeah. is done intentionally in order to make it seem like atrocities that have been committed since then are actually not that bad because at least we aren't like them. You know, exactly. at least we're not using like, for lack of a better word, like savage and barbaric torture chambers. Yeah, at least we're not ripping people apart with four horses or whatever. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And an interesting point that the authors in The Bright Ages make is that these simplistic narratives about medieval, about the medieval age, which is like a very fluid period, which is why I'm kind of hesitating to ascribe like a date range to it. And the historians, uh, the authors of the book themselves acknowledge that there are many different date ranges that you could apply. But for lack of a better way to refer to them, the reason that the medieval age has been co-opted by people both on the left and the right to justify their own ways of thinking. On the right, they're invoked as a nostalgic white past to mm -hmm. refer to, to justify any actions as that they may take as uh, trying to recreate a more pure past that has been lost, um, which is completely false. But then also on the left, people will invoke the medieval age to say that uh, exactly what you were saying, which is it's this narrative of progress, right? That we mm -hmm. have come so far. Now we have science. Now we have technology. Now we have X, whatever thing you're trying to uplift. Whereas back in the medieval age, they didn't have those things. And so look how far we've come. And therefore we need to protect universities, Silicon mm -hmm. Valley, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and not regress back into this medieval period. So both of those ideas are, are striving, obviously, for very different ends. And obviously, you know, one is worse than the other. Uh, but regardless, the authors say both groups of people are simplifying the history that actually exists. And we need to acknowledge what the truth of the history actually was as best as we can with all the evidence that we have. And I think that that is a very important undertaking and it was really fun to read also. It didn't feel like a slog. It didn't feel pedantic or didactic or anything. It was just a little bit hokey with all the light metaphors, <laughs> but that was, I thought, very, very fun. And it, it didn't bother me too much. It was, it was well-written. Cool. Yeah. So the last book that I read, I literally just finished this a couple of days ago, so it's fresh, was The Other Black Girl by Zakia Dalila Harris. And it was a, I guess, mystery, psychological thriller, as I think is how it's described. 
And it follows Nella Rogers, who's the main protagonist, and she is working at a publishing house, a very well-respected publishing house in New York City. And she is the only black person working in the editing department. And she is an editor's assistant, so she works specifically with an editor. There are no black editors. All of the editors are white. The only other black characters that are referenced that at the start of the novel work in the building is one man who he works in the mailroom and the front desk receptionist. And it follows Nella's experience when they hire a new editor's assistant, Hazel, who is another black girl. And uh, initially Nella's really excited because she is excited not to be the lone minority in her office dealing with the usual microaggressions that when only one black person is working in an office, I'm sure has to deal with. And very quickly things go awry. There's a bit of a um, catastrophe, I guess, with one author that she is in a meeting with. And very quickly Nella loses all favor that she has in the company. And Hazel, the other black girl in the office, really throws her under the bus and uses her downfall to lift herself up. And after there is this kind of like fallout with an author, Nella starts receiving these notes left on her desk that say, leave the company now. They're typed up, her name is written on the front of the envelope, but she doesn't know who's sending her these. She gets a few, they get increasingly more threatening, telling her that it's things will only get worse for her, she needs to leave. And so it's her trying to figure out who is sending her these and also dealing with the anxiety of being on the outs with her boss and her boss's boss and everyone else in the company. And I don't want to give too much away because it was very well written. I experienced a lot of anxiety around her feeling like she was going to get fired at every turn. I think I even said to you, I was like, I don't know if I can finish this. Like my stomach hurts from how anxious I am. Yeah, it was a bit of a trigger for you. Yeah, just the like constant, I guess, way that her boss was like sliding her and icing her out and uh, the way that she really feared for her job. Oh my God, I was like sweating. But I'm glad I finished it. It was really amazing. And also it went in a direction I was not expecting at all. And it was very cool. I thought for sure, I was positive I knew what was going to happen. And I did not in the slightest. I couldn't, if you had given me 700 tries, I never would have guessed how this book would end. So I would definitely... It was not all a dream. <laughs> if it was all a dream, this would be a different conversation. <laughs> Could you imagine two dream books in one podcast? I would have lost my mind. How did you find them? <laughs> but it was very, very good. And it spoke a lot about the way that black women in workplaces have to give up parts of themselves and bend and conform in ways that they should not have to in order to maintain the status quo and ensure that white people feel comfortable Mm. and it really didn't pull any punches with what it was trying to say about that and the way that it showed that and I can see why it was a good morning America book club pick like I understand completely why people really are drawn to this book and were really drawn into the story I think it was really interesting and the author really delivered on what they had to say Nice. Yeah. Well, it's nice to end on a high. Yeah. Okay. Now, our page is goal. 
Yeah, so we're we missed this last podcast episode. We so. forgot the gimmick of our own podcast, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we simply never recorded it again. But you know what? That's fine. That's part of our rock and roll lifestyle, where yeah. we just we did say format TBD, <laughs> so it's fine. It's fine. Also, it gave me some time to read more. <laughs> yeah, it makes it makes the the increase in pages seem more impressive. Yeah. Um, all right. Why don't uh, Why don't you go ahead? Okay. So I have read five thousand five hundred and sixty nine pages. That hurts. Thirty seven percent of the way to my goal. What's your goal? Fifteen thousand pages. I'm at four thousand seventy five pages, which is twenty seven percent of the way to the goal of fifteen thousand pages. And uh, Storygraph helpfully tells me 774 pages more until you're caught up. You've got this. I'm ahead by 700 pages. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to rub it in. It's just such close numbers. It's okay. I'm going to read for 10 days straight. I will enter a fugue state like the girl in that book. Mm -hmm. And then I'll wake up and realize it was all a dream and I didn't actually read anything. You can count the dream pages. Okay, great. I'm sure no I'll one do that one. No one listening to the podcast will have anything to say about that, I'm sure. Well, <laughs> if they do, no they don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's everything. Well, please join us next time for another chaotic and fun episode of More Pages. I forget what I meant to say at the end of this. I think it's something about uh, subscribe to us and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast we would really appreciate it Uh, we have a lot of fun making this podcast and we hope that you enjoy it as well also where can we be found on the internet we can be found on the line at what a millennial joke to make (laughs) none of the gen z's will appreciate that our one gen z listener my sister (laughs) shout out to shannon (laughs) uh we can be found on instagram at more pages and I guess also my bookstagram, which is faith.reads. All of the books that we mentioned are linked in the description if you would like to check any of them out. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.